7. There's probably a Bible somewhere around you. In true teacher fashion, I will give everyone a moment to find their page. We're in Luke 7, and we will start in verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked, <clears throat> excuse me, asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, sir. All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Soma. I am Josh, one of the pastors here. Um, we are continuing uh, a series in the topic of friendship. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Bible and we've been asking, what does the Bible teach us about friendship? What does the Bible teach us about uh, developing good friendships, about becoming good friends? And, and I think one of the things that I've realized as we've walked through this series is that a lot of us don't think about that. We don't think about that. We think, okay, I kind of already know what it means to be a friend. It's something that we kind of intuit. It's something that we kind of feel like we learn uh, from experience. But the truth is, God gives us truth. God gives us guardrails and understanding and insight in his word into what it means to be a true friend because here's why because god created us as human beings 
God created us as human beings in the world in which we live, and he knows how we will flourish. He knows how we will thrive in his world, and friendship is a major piece of that. God created us as relational beings. God is a relational God. From before the world existed, God was a community of friends, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as human beings who have been created in the image of God, who have been created to reflect God, we reflect that hunger for friendship. And the truth is, if you pay attention to your own soul, you will realize that we don't just have a hunger for friendship with one another. We hunger for friendship with God. We were created to be God's friends. We were created for friendship with God. You see this pattern all throughout the Bible. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. God creates Adam and Eve, and it says that God walked with them in the cool of the day. It is highly relational language. It's, it's the language of friendship. In other words, Adam and Eve used to go for walks with God after dinner. But then you, you keep going throughout the story of the Bible, and you see that, that we broke our friendship with God. We turned our backs on the God who loved us and who created us. Our friendship with God was broken, and as a result, our friendships, our interpersonal relationships were broken. And we see all of the pain, the relational friction, the isolation that we experienced because our friendship with God was broken. And the rest of the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward is the story about how God doesn't give up on his friends. The entire story of the Bible is how God continues to pursue friendship with the very people who have turned their backs on him. It's a story about how God still wants us to be his friends and how he will do whatever it takes to repair the relationship that we have broken. See, the Bible is a story all about the God who's a friend of sinners. Now, when I say that word sin, when I say that word sinners, I don't know what, what, what images are conjured up in your mind. Some of us think sin is just a, a psychosis. We think it's just an, an old, antiquated way of thinking. For some of us, we think of sin as these really dark, dirty things, these, the, these really bad people out there. But, but sin at its core, do you know what sin is? Sin at its core is breaking friendship with God. Sin at its core is saying, God, I know you've created me for yourself. I know you've created me to know you and to love you. I know you've created me as your friend, but I want this other thing more than you. I want this other thing instead of you. I love something else more than I love you. I love my bank account more than you. I love my job more than you. I love my sex life more than you. I love my reputation more than you. I love my religion more than you. So we've got these things. We've got these things that, that, that we hold on to, that we love in the place of God, and we're willing to turn our backs on our best friend because we love those things more. And the absolutely mind-blowing thing about God is that God's not okay with that. The mind-blowing thing about God is that God doesn't give up on us. See, most of us, if someone told us, I don't value your friendship, I don't want anything to do with you, we would simply walk away. We would wipe our hands of the thing. Or maybe we'd, just, we'd get filled with bitterness and we'd harbor a grudge against them. But that's not what God does. God lovingly and patiently pursues us. He is the God, He is the friend who doesn't give up on us. 
The friend who the Scripture says leaves the throne of heaven, comes to earth, becomes a man, dies in our place on a cross, rises again because he wants to make us his friends, because he is a friend of sinners. So that's what we see in this passage today. We see that Jesus Christ, that God in the flesh, is the friend of sinners. Now here's the thing, as, as, we, as we look into this text, if you've been here, you know we've been looking into the Bible and we've been seeing what does the Bible teach us about how we can become better friends. And so it's tempting to come to a passage like this today and to look at Jesus merely as an example. So here's Jesus. Jesus is a friend of sinners. There's all those sinners out there in the world. And this shows me how I can be like Jesus. Go be like Jesus. Go be a friend of sinners. That's not going to work. And, and here's why. Because you are not Jesus. That is your profound theological truth for today. That is what I've got for you. You are not Jesus. I am not Jesus. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Before we can be friends to other people, we need to experience the friendship of Jesus. Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't just come for all of those dirty sinners out there. Jesus came for the sinners in here. He came for you and he came for me. And before you can be a friend to others, we need to experience, we need to know the friend of sinners. Before we can experience, before we can extend his love, we need to experience his love. And if you think about it, that's the way you learn relationships, right? You learn them by experience. And so before you can be this kind of friend, you have to have this kind of friend. That's what we have in Jesus. We've got the friend of sinners. And I'm convinced that as we experience the friendship of Jesus, we will become better friends to other people. We'll become better friends to one another in the church and we'll become better friends to, to folks who are outside of the church. We will become better friends with people who are far from God because we were far from God. And God has brought us near. Jesus has been a friend to us. So what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see how Jesus is a friend of sinners, how he's a friend to you and me. And as we experience that friendship, we're going to become better friends to other people. So we're going to look at this passage today, and two simple questions, two simple questions that we're going to look at from this text. What kind of friend is Jesus, and how do I respond to the friend of sinners? What kind of friend is Jesus, and how do I respond to him? First, what, what kind of friend is is Jesus to sinners. Now, this, this passage is absolutely fascinating. I find this passage to be one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. I was telling people in the first service, like, I have loved this text. I first encountered this passage about 20 years ago, and I've wanted to teach it, and I've been afraid to teach it until this point because I just don't want to mess it up. Because I feel like part of it is, I feel like I should just read this, and I should take off the mic, and we should all go home, which probably is what some of you are hoping for, but that's not what we're going to do. But this is such a beautiful, such a fascinating passage. Verse 34, you have this phrase here, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, here's the interesting thing about this phrase. This was not intended to be a compliment. This phrase was intended as an accusation. It was intended as an insult. This is what the religious leaders are saying about Jesus. So he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He hangs out with con men and prostitutes. He says he's a prophet. He, he, he gives us all this God talk. But look who he associates with. Look who his friends are. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, you have no idea how right you are. Thank God they were right. Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
And in this very next passage, this story of this dinner at Simon's house, he proves them right. He says, let me show you just how much a friend of sinners I am. So starting in verse 36, Luke tells the story about this dinner party that Jesus is invited to. There's this Pharisee, this religious leader named Simon. He throws this party. Now, now what you need to understand is that this isn't a private dinner. So, so Simon doesn't just invite Jesus over and say, hey, Jesus, come have dinner with, with my family. This is a public event. This is a community event. Simon would have been one of the wealthiest men in the town. And so he's kind of showing, throwing a reception for Jesus. Jesus is this, this well-known religious teacher. He's coming through town. Simon has this reception. And, and people kind of have an open invitation to come in and to see Jesus. So Simon and Jesus, they're sitting there at the head table. But there's all these other people coming and going. Look what happens. Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Simon and Jesus are, are sitting there, minding their own business, probably having a theological conversation about something. This woman comes in, and it says she is a sinner. Most likely, this is a, another way of saying that she was a prostitute. Like she wasn't just a sinner. She was a notorious sinner. She was the woman who walked around town with the invisible scarlet letter pinned to her chest. Luke says she walks right up to Jesus, and she starts crying. And she takes out this jar of perfume. And she begins to pour it on his feet and rub it into his feet. And she takes down her hair. In that time, a woman could be publicly executed for taking down her hair in public. It was considered to be an extremely erotic thing. And she takes down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And she begins to kiss his feet. And she begins to pour out this perfume on them. Is anybody else getting uncomfortable? Like, I read that, and I'm uncomfortable just reading that. And, and I live in 21st century America, where we are very desensitized, where we're a highly sexualized culture. This was, they lived in first century Palestine. They lived in a time when many men would not even speak to a woman in public. Most of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, would not even look at a woman in public. And this prostitute walks in off the street into the house of this Pharisee and she walks right up to Jesus and she begins pouring out this lavish, scandalous expression of love. This is where you hear the record scratch. This is where all the music stops. Everybody turns and they look at Jesus. How is Jesus going to handle this? And everybody in the place is expecting Jesus is going to push this woman away. He's going to break out the pepper spray. He's going to rebuke her. He's going to call security. He's going to do something like that. And, and, and we read this, and what does Jesus do? He speaks to her. He commends her. He says, this is a model of what faith looks like. This is a model of what true love looks like. He says her sins are forgiven. Her faith has saved her. He welcomes her to the table. He welcomes her as his friend. The first thing we see about Jesus as a friend of sinners, Jesus is approachable. He is utterly approachable. 
We don't, we don't know much about this woman. We don't really know anything about her story. We don't know how she ended up at this party, this, this dinner that Simon is throwing. We don't know if she'd ever encountered Jesus before. Maybe she's heard from her friends. Jesus is a friend of sinners. She, we don't know, but one thing she knows is that this man is a friend of sinners. Somehow she knows that there is something different about this man. He is not like any other man that she has ever encountered. All the other men she's ever met have used her or condemned her or both. But here is a man who is utterly different. Here is a man who somehow values her as a person. More than that, he doesn't just value her as a person in the abstract. He values her as a friend. Because of that, she boldly walks into this party. She walks past all the other guests who are whispering about her who are staring at her, who are looking down on her with their silently arched eyebrows. She walks past all of them, and she walks up to Jesus, and she pours out her love on him. Even though it's undignified, even though it's scandalous, even though she's going to be judged by others, she knows that this man is utterly approachable and safe. And she doesn't need to pretend. She doesn't need to posture. She doesn't need to play the religious games and make sure other people will accept, will accept her because she knows that Jesus will accept her and that's all that matters. Now let me ask you today, do you believe that about Jesus? Do you believe that the same Jesus who welcomed this woman wants to welcome you? And he doesn't expect you to pretend and he doesn't expect you to posture, and he doesn't expect you to learn how to play the religious game. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to walk right up to him. He wants you to pour yourself out before him. He wants you to join him at the dinner table. Even if no one else understands, even if no one else accepts you, even if people think you're dirty or messed up or crazy, he wants you to come to him, to be loved deeply by him, and to love deeply in return. It's the first thing we see. Jesus is an approachable friend of sinners. Second thing we see, Jesus is a patient friend of sinners. Patient friend of sinners. Look how the Pharisee responds, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. All right, so here's Simon. Simon's sitting there thinking in his own mind. He's not saying these things out loud. He's thinking, Jesus doesn't know what's going on here. He's silently judging everyone. He's judging this woman because she's a sinner. But more than that, he's silently judging Jesus. He thinks Jesus doesn't know what everyone else knows. Jesus says he's a prophet. But how can he know the deep things of God? He doesn't even know who this woman is. And here's the irony. The irony is that Jesus knows it perfectly well. Jesus knows exactly who this woman is, but more than that, Jesus knows exactly who Simon is. He knows exactly what Simon is thinking at that moment. He knows silent is, Simon is sitting there silently judging him. But notice how he responds. He is so patient. He doesn't write him off. He doesn't say, you self-righteous religious hypocrite. Do you have any clue who I am? Instead, what does he do? He tells him a story. He tells him a story and brings him along to show him where he's wrong and to show him his need. Jesus is so patient. Jesus is patient with all kinds of sinners. He is patient with prostitutes and he is patient with Pharisees. That is really good news. 
Because it means regardless of where you come from today, Jesus is the friend who is patient with you. I look back over my life. I look back at times in my life where I was more like Simon the Pharisee. I look back at other times in my life where I was more like this, this sinful woman. I can still see both of those impulses inside of me. And I am so thankful that Jesus is patient with me. He was patient with me when I was trying to climb out of some quicksand of some really deep sin. And he was patient with me when I was a self-righteous Pharisee looking down my nose at other people. He is patient with all kinds of sinners. Which is really good because we've got all kinds of sinners in the room this morning. Some of you are more like this woman. You've got this checkered past. And you wonder, could I ever really come to Jesus? Could Jesus ever actually accept me? Could, could he ever actually welcome me as a friend? Some of us are more like Simon the Pharisee. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. I've kept my nose pretty clean. Why wouldn't Jesus want me as a friend? The truth is that Jesus is patient with both groups of people. The religious and the irreligious. The moral and the immoral, the Pharisees and the prostitutes. He is so patient with us because sometimes, like Simon, we just don't get it. And he's so patient with us. But he goes further. Jesus isn't just a patient friend. If he, if he was just a patient friend, he wouldn't ultimately do us any good. This is, this is kind of what some people think about Jesus. People kind of think like Jesus is just cool with whatever. He's, he's just kind of like, yeah, however you want to live, do your thing, right? You want to be a prostitute? Cool. You want to be a self-righteous religious hypocrite? Cool. You do you. You do your thing. Fact is, that's not Jesus. Jesus loves us too much for that. Jesus is too good a friend for that. C.S. Lewis famously said it this way. He said, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. See, Jesus is not just an approachable friend. He's not just a patient friend. He's also a truthful friend. He's a truthful friend. You see this in Jesus all throughout the Bible. He meets someone, he engages them, but he is always going deeper. He is always putting his finger on the real issue in people's lives. Whether they're a Pharisee or whether they're a prostitute, he loves people enough to tell them the truth. He loves people enough to go beneath the surface and to address their deeper need. That's what a real friend does, isn't it? A real friend loves you enough to tell you the truth. A real friend loves you enough to help you see what you really need and to help you get it. A real friend is approachable. You can come to them with all your baggage and all your failures. And a real friend is patient. They don't write you off when you don't get it. But a real friend is also truthful. A real friend tells you the truth about yourself. You see this in the way he speaks with Simon. So here's Simon. He's, he's silently judging Jesus. He's got this whole monologue going on in his mind. And Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. And Jesus doesn't just ignore it. Jesus doesn't just wash over it. Nor does Jesus just come at him just in a condemning way. But Jesus helps him see the truth. Jesus helps him see his deepest need. Look what he says. Okay, verse 40. Jesus answering him said, Simon... I have something to say to you. Now, this is fascinating. It says Jesus was answering him. Like, Simon wasn't saying this. Simon wasn't saying anything out loud. If I'm Simon at that moment, I am freaking out. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you are, um, you probably shouldn't say that, you're talking about someone, and then your phone rings, and it's them? 
And you're like looking at it and you're freaking out and you're like, did I pocket dial them? What's going on? And you, you start, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but confession today. Like that has happened to me. That's kind of what's happening here. He's got this whole internal monologue going on where he's thinking about Jesus, where he is condemning Jesus. He is judging Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Verse 40, he said to him, say it, teacher. 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus says, Simon, you think the problem is that I don't know who this woman is. There's a deeper problem here, Simon. The, the real problem is not that I don't know who this woman is. The real problem, Simon, is that you don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. You think this woman is a sinner? You are right. Her sins are many. But she's not the only sinner in this room. You know she's a sinner. She knows she's a sinner. The problem, Simon, is that you don't realize that you are a sinner. You don't realize that you have a debt you can't pay. And here's how I know that, Simon. I know that because I see the way that she responds to me. And I know that because I see the way that you respond to me. Simon, you invited me into your home. You, you asked me over here so that you could evaluate me, so that you could interview me, so that you could critique me, so you could check me out as a religious teacher. You've done the obligatory religious thing, but you don't love me. You don't love me, Simon. But look at this woman. She has poured out her love on me. I've been walking around the desert. My feet are dry and cracked and hurting and dirty. And you didn't even give me a bowl of water to wash my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. It would have been customary in our culture, Simon, for you to give me a kiss on the cheek, just, just as a sign of hospitality. You didn't think I was important enough to give a kiss on the cheek, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since she got here. Could have poured out a little olive oil on my head just as a sign of respect, Simon. I mean, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one, but, but you didn't even bother with that. But she has taken this expensive perfume and she has poured it all over my feet. So Jesus says, here's the real issue, Simon. The real issue is you don't see the depth of your sin. And because of that, you don't see your need for a savior. You think you're a pretty good guy. You think God would be pretty lucky to have you on his team. She knows better than that. You don't think forgiveness is that big of a deal. She knows that my mercy, my love, my friendship, my forgiveness is her only hope. Tells him directly. He tells Simon the truth. Why? Because he wants him to experience what this woman experienced. He wants Simon to experience his mercy. He wants him to experience his forgiveness. It's the final thing you see in this passage. Jesus is a, an approachable friend. He's a patient friend. He's a truthful friend. Finally, he's a forgiving friend. 
He's a forgiving friend. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? He even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the people are shocked. They are absolutely floored by this. And here's why. Because in in Hebrew thought, in, in biblical thought, only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. I mean, think about it for a minute. Only the person who has been wronged can forgive the person who has wronged them. Somebody breaks into your house. They steal all your stuff. Then they come and tell me about it, and I say, oh, it's cool, I forgive you. How do you react to that? It's not my place to forgive them. It's not my right to forgive them. It's your place to decide whether or not you forgive them. They haven't wronged me. They've wronged you. See, sin at its core is wronging God. It's robbing God. It's robbing God of the worship and the love and the friendship that he created us for. It's betraying your best friend. It's spitting in the face of your best friend and walking away from the friend who loves you with all his heart. If one of my friends wounds me deeply, you can't forgive them for me. I need to be the one to forgive them. That's what's going on here. This woman has wronged God. She's robbed God. She has spit in God's face and turned her back on God. And then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. So how can Jesus say that? The only way he can say that, this is why they're so floored, the only way he can say that is if he's God in the flesh. If he's the friend who loves her even when she hated him. If he's the friend who refused to give up even when she wanted nothing to do. And now she comes back to him. And he forgives her. He forgives her fully. He forgives her completely. He forgives her without reservation, without caveat. He doesn't say, go sit in the corner for a little while and think about what you've done. He doesn't say, you need to do X, Y, or Z to earn back my friendship. Jesus completely absorbs the debt that she couldn't pay. He paid it for her. He took the shame and the guilt and the death and the condemnation that she deserved. took the shame the guilt, the death, and the condemnation that we deserve. And he paid it for us because he's the friend of sinners. Let me stop there for a minute and just ask you, like, just taking that, do you see how that makes you a better friend? Do you see how having a friend like that makes you a better friend of other people? It makes you a better friend to people in this church because we can be patient with one another because we're all sinners who have experienced the friendship of Jesus. And it should make us a better friend to people who are outside of the church. It should make us better friends to people who are far from God. Let me ask you, can you, can you point to someone in your life, a friend in your life who's far from God? How are you interacting with them? How's your friendship with them? Are you approachable with them? Do your friends who are far from God know that they can talk to you about real life? Do they know that they can talk to you about real things even when they don't have everything together? See, I'm afraid that for many of us, for Christians, sometimes we are not very approachable to people who are far from God. But it should be the opposite. As as, as followers of Jesus, we should be the most approachable people on the planet. 
God himself has invited us to approach him. He calls us in Hebrews 4 to come boldly before his throne of grace. And so as we approach him with confidence, we become the kind of people that other people can approach with confidence. Are you approachable to people who are far from God? Are you patient with other people? Are you patient with people who don't know Jesus? Are you patient with people who disagree with you, who don't see things the way that you see them? Are you truthful with them? I think this is one of the key lessons that, that probably we here need to learn. Many of us are approachable. Many of us are patient, but we're not truthful. We won't open our mouths and tell people the truth. We don't love people well enough to tell them the truth. We don't value them enough. We value being able to hang out with them. We value being accepted by them. We value not rocking the boat. We value our own comfort. But if we really love people, if we really love our friends, then we should love them enough to point them to Jesus, to point them to the friend who died and rose again to make them his friend. Are you a truthful friend? Are you a forgiving friend? I mean, it is really difficult to develop any sort of a friendship without forgiveness. You can be an acquaintance with someone. You, you can maintain, maintain friendship for a little while, but you cannot maintain long-term friendship without forgiveness. For many of us, this is why we don't have long-term friends, because we don't know how to forgive our friends, and we don't know how to humble ourselves and ask for their forgiveness. See, the grace of God changes us. The friendship of Jesus should make us better friends of other people. Because when you realize that God is approachable to you in all of your dirtiness and messiness and shame, you can be approachable to other people in all of their dirtiness and messiness and shame. When you realize that God is patient with you, even when you don't get it, you can be patient with other people even when they don't get it. When you realize that God is truthful with you, that he loves you enough to tell you the truth, you can be patient with one another and you can love one another and you can be truthful to other people and you can tell them the truth even when it's something they don't want to hear. When you realize that God has forgiven you, you can forgive others. Not because they deserve it, but because God has forgiven you when you don't deserve it. See, as we experience Jesus as the friend of sinners, we learn to love others as he's loved us. So the second question I just want to ask is just this. What does it look like to experience the friendship of Jesus? If Jesus is the friend of sinners, if he offers this friendship to us, then, then how do we respond to the friend of sinners? It's fascinating. If you look at the story, you've got two people here. You've got Simon and you've got this woman. And they're both in the presence of Jesus. They both encounter Jesus as the friend of sinners. But you see two different ways of responding to him. Some of us here respond to Jesus like Simon. Simon, if, if you look at this passage, he is always keeping Jesus at arm's length. He responds with this sense of detachment. He starts out and he's, he's kind of curious about Jesus, right? He throws him this big party. He wants to check Jesus out. Here's Jesus. Here's the miracle worker. Here's the religious teacher. I want to have him over. I want to interview him. I want to evaluate him. I want to see what he's all about. He starts out pretty curious. And then he moves into this place of skepticism. Starts to doubt Jesus. He says, ah, I, this guy can't possibly know what he's talking about. Eventually, Jesus shows him that he does know what he's talking about. But all throughout, you see Simon is detached. He's standing back. He's evaluating Jesus. He's critiquing Jesus. It's like he's the employer and he is interviewing Jesus for the job of Savior and Lord. 
That's how a lot of us approach Jesus. Maybe we're, maybe we're curious about him. Maybe he intrigues us. That's a good starting point. It's important to ask questions. But we can't just keep him there. What you need to know is like Jesus doesn't just want to be a curiosity to you. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your savior. He wants to be your Lord. Some of us are curious. Some of us are skeptical. And we look at Jesus and we look at the things Jesus says and we say, Jesus can't possibly know what he's talking about. Some of us aren't necessarily skeptical. We're just indifferent. If we really were honest, Jesus just isn't that big of a deal to us. This is where I'm so concerned that so many of us are. This is where I'm so concerned that I find myself at times. We believe the right things about Jesus. We say the right things about Jesus, but we keep them at a distance. We've never had our souls lit on fire like the woman in this story. And our fundamental problem is the same as Simon's fundamental problem. We don't realize how much we've been forgiven. Either we've never experienced forgiveness, either we're still carrying around this guilt and shame that Jesus has dealt with, or, or we, have, we have experienced forgiveness and it's just no big deal to us. Yeah, maybe I messed up in my life. Yeah, who hasn't messed up in their lives? Yeah, it's, it's nice that, that God forgave me that 20 bucks that I owed him, but I don't owe him a billion dollars like this guy over here. We don't understand the depths of our sin. We don't understand the way that our sin breaks the heart of God. We don't understand the depths to which Jesus has gone to forgive our sin. If you want to know how great the debt of your sin and my sin was, just look at what Jesus did to pay for it. They take him to a place called the skull. And they tortured him. And they mocked him. And they spit on him. And they beat him. And they nailed him to a piece of wood where he suffocated in his own blood. He was rejected by his closest friends. He was forsaken by his father. Why did he do it? did it to pay the debt of our sin. He did it so that we could be his friends. When that hits you, when that becomes real to you, when that stops being just an intellectual truth out there, when that lands in your soul, it will light your soul on fire. Simon is detached. He's indifferent. But look out, look at her. Look at the way this woman comes to Jesus. Simon came only with his head. He's just evaluating Jesus. She comes with her head and her heart and her body and her possessions and her whole being. Simon just keeps Jesus at a distance. She clings to him. She washes his feet with her tears. She kisses him. She weeps on him. Simon tries to control Jesus. He's, he's the one in power. He's the one evaluating Jesus. He's the interviewer and Jesus is the applicant. She makes herself completely vulnerable. She gives up everything for him. Luke tells us in this passage that she took this alabaster flask filled with expensive perfume and she, she poured it out on his feet. In all likelihood, this flask, this perfume, was the most, most uh, valuable thing that she owned. Alabaster fat flask with, uh, with perfume would have been something that prostitutes wore around their neck in the first century. It was considered an aphrodisiac. It was something that they used to make themselves desirable to men. And so when she takes her hair down, and when she pours out her perfume, she is pouring out the tools of her trade. 
She is giving up everything for him. She says, I don't need these anymore. I don't need to be dependent on the dirty, demeaning desires of men. Because I have found the man whose desire for me is pure, whose love for me is pure, and I don't need anything else. She says, Jesus, you are more valuable than anything else. You are more desirable than anything else. You are more valuable to me than the thing I thought made me desirable, than the thing that I thought gave me value. I don't need the things that I used to need. I only need you. I only want you. Listen, the truth is that metaphorically speaking, everyone in this room has a little invisible alabaster flask hanging around your neck. You have something that is more important to you, that is more valuable to you than anything else in the world. You have something that you believe makes you desirable. You have something that you believe gives you value. You have something that you are living for that keeps you from true love and true friendship with Jesus. You have something that wants to keep you away from the life and the love and the friendship that you were created for. I don't know exactly what it is for you, but my prayer for every single one of us in this room is that God would show us what that is and that we would be a people who pour that out, who pour ourselves out on the feet of Jesus. That we would be a people who respond to Jesus just like she does with desperate faith. Like she knows she's got nothing else. She knows Jesus is her only hope who respond with unreserved worship. She takes the most valuable thing she has and she just pours it out on him with lavish love, even though people don't understand it, even though other people don't get it. That we would realize that we've been forgiven much and that we would love much in return. John Newton, who was a, a pastor in England who wrote the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, um, said this at the end of his life. He, he had been a slave trader. He was converted uh, to Christianity. Um, he experienced the amazing grace of Jesus. That's why he, he wrote the song. It's at the very end of his life. He's blind at this point. And he says, I'm an old man now, but two things I remember, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That's how I hope we get. Yeah, you, me, all of us, we are great sinners, but Christ is is a great Savior. I hope that what happens is that we encounter the friend of sinners, that we recognize how much we've been forgiven, and that we love much in return. Truth is, Jesus welcomes sinners. This is a beautiful picture you see in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't just like forgive sinners and say, okay, you're cool now. He welcomes sinners. He invites us to the dinner table with him. He invites us to eat and drink with him as his friends. And so in just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder. The Lord's Supper, this, this bread and this cup, is a visible, tangible, edible reminder of that truth. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a friend of Jesus, not if you've got everything together, not if you know all the answers, not if you've got yourself cleaned up and you can play the religious game, if you are trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection to make you right with God, if you realize, I got nothing left, I've got nothing else, I just need Jesus, then Jesus invites you to come and to eat and drink with him as his friends. The way that we do that here, we have stations at the front, we have stations uh, in the gallery, in the back, we simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, take it and return to our seats. 
And maybe you're hearing that's not true for you. Maybe you hear me talk about this stuff and it's like I'm talking another language. And like, what does this mean? Having my sins forgiven. What does this mean? Being the friend of Jesus. We would invite you just to, to remain seated while others come to take the bread and the cup. And I hope you hear from this, from what we've said today. That's not because we think we are morally superior in any way, shape, or form. But it's because this meal is a meal that's a reminder for those of us who have accepted the friendship of Jesus. For those of us who have trusted in his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. So maybe you've got questions about that. Maybe, maybe you're saying, I'm not sure. I've got some questions I need answered. We would love to speak with you after the service. So let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Father, I confess to you that I can be so detached from you. I can be so distant. I can keep you at a distance. God, we, we sang earlier asking you that we would never lose our wonder, that we would be wide-eyed and mystified just like a child staring at the beauty of our king. And I confess to you that so often that's not true for me. That I, that I forget how much you've forgiven me, that I forget how much you love me. Father, many of us in this room, we've, it's become commonplace to us. Your love, your friendship, your forgiveness, your body and blood, it's just become commonplace to us. Pray that you would change that. Pray that you would light our souls on fire again. Some of us are far from you. Some of us have never experienced your friendship, I pray that you would be drawing, that you would be drawing people to yourself to experience your forgiveness and your friendship for the first time. For some of us to experience it for the hundredth time. To re be reminded of your beauty and your love and your forgiveness. You're our only hope, Jesus. Thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you for your blood shed for us. Amen.